My name is David Lean. Welcome to Man Marking. We're asking, where's the talking, lads? You only get into, out the game what you put into it, Shelley. Mm-hmm. And I put everything into it I could and still do for the people and for the people that I was playing for and the people that I was manager for. I didn't cheat them out of anything. So I put all my heart and soul to the extent that my family suffered. You regret that at all? Oh, yeah, I regret, oh, I regret it very much, yeah. Somebody said the football's a matter of life and death to you. I said, listen, it's more important than that. Welcome to Man Marking, the podcast that uses football as a vehicle to encourage men to become more comfortable talking about their mental health. Today we're talking to David Lean. Yeah, um, my name's David Lean. I am a survivor of sexual abuse within football from my football coach, Barry Bernal. First port of call then, then, David. What's your earliest footballing memory? I, I don't remember my life without it. Um, I think... That's it, really. You know, there's talk of me starting junior football sessions and going to football junior sessions that were for four and five-year-olds when I was about two and a half. Um, I had two older brothers. So just just literally never without a ball. Sound a little bit like um sound a little bit like myself. I was I was very much the same when I was when I was very young. And yeah. you 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 joined Preston North End as a youngster. How did how did that come about? Yeah, um, it sort of didn't really. I, what, what happened was I was at Burnley for the last two years of uh, school. In those days, there was what they call associated schoolboy forms and you were attached to a club. You couldn't sign for a club until you were 14 and you spent the last two years at school sort of attached to that club and then they made a decision on you. And about three weeks before I left school, even though I'd been verbally sort of promised a, an apprenticeship, um it was then sort of, I suppose, taken away from me. Um, I wasn't academic at all. So three weeks before you leave school is a bit of an issue. Um, and yeah, I mean, we've heard it all before. I was heartbroken and didn't know what I was going to do in my life and ended up going into sort of a leisure a facility that was just up the road from me, a local YMCA. Um, knew the boss there really well. And, and I actually started work there uh, July the 4th, 1983. I was 15 because I was the youngest in my school year. And then I'd been been working, actually been working there for a few months and I got involved. There was no, no youth team soccer, unfortunately, in, in those days. You went straight from leaving school to adult football. Um, there was no like under 18s. In, there was at clubs, but if you, just, if you just went to like your local Saturday club, your local Sunday clubs, there was no youth team. It was just straight to adult football. So I actually started adult football when I was 15. Um, I'm not a particularly big bloke anyway, so uh, it, was, it was quite difficult. And then this bloke just appeared at the end of a match um, early on, I'd say probably end of September. Um, so when I actually went to Preston on a trial, it was the October half term. Um, I was, if you will, I was behind the other YTS lads who'd already been taken on in the July Um so, yeah, I, uh, I ended up spending three years at uh, North End. The last year was uh, classed as what they call non-contract forms, which is like expenses. Um, but in those days, Preston was struggling. So I played uh, an awful lot of games, fortunate enough in those days to play an awful lot of games for the reserves. And 
and I was very close. I was sort of on the fringe a few times. It never really happened. And, and uh, yeah, in the end, it, it, it sort of, the dream ended, if you will. But fortunately, I played on, I think it was 27 or 28 professional football grounds, many of which are no longer the actual grounds for them teams. They've moved on with new stadiums. Um, but yeah, it was brilliant. I absolutely loved it and uh, don't regret it at all. And uh, probably the best three years of my life. Yeah, absolutely. Had you had you always wanted to be a footballer? Was that kind of your nothing your else. dream? Yeah, yeah, absolutely nothing else. Um, and you know, it, I think it was you know it was a reality. It really was. I was doing really well as a kid. Um, you know, clubs were looking at me. It was it was. I felt that I was progressing well. A um, little bit on the short side, and I was very very lightweight um, I sort of didn't really fill out much until I was 18, 19 more when I was coming to the end at, at Preston really um, so you know I'm only about five, eight and a half um, in height uh, went to North End really as a winger um, and they already had a winger it didn't really work out and I couldn't break into the reserves I was playing sort of for the youth team and the other sort of YTS lad was playing for the reserves um, and in the end, a fullback got injured, and I went to fullback, and and because of I think because of my I was quite good on the ball anyway, but because of my sort of just natural being a winger and as a kid, it sort of fitted in, um, and I went from strength to strength at, at fullback, and and ended up a, a captain in the reserves a few times in the end as well. So it was good, yeah, really enjoyed it. Never wanted to be anything else. And you did you carry on playing football? After after that, did you carry on playing in your, in your yeah, adult I, years as well? Listen, I, I know you know people say these things and stuff, but it was never about money. It really wasn't. It was I mean, there was no money in the game in those days anyway. But it, you know, it, it it was my love for the game. I mean, I played Sunday football for probably twenty years with with pub sides on a in the local league, um, and I could have played in the Premier League on a Sunday, which is you know the top league on a Sunday round our way. I could have played all my seasons in that league. And I chose not to. Um, I was playing for my, my brother's team for a few years. Then I played with some of my mates. It was about a game of football. It was about my love for the game. Um, I was having a competitive game on a Saturday. Uh, I played, I actually did play a few games for Fleetwood when they were non-league, um, just before the you know, Northern Premier as it was. Um, I played in the West Lanks. I played in the Northwest Counties um, for many seasons in both those divisions. And I absolutely loved it. You know, I was paying to play. It was costing me three quid or four quid to pay my subs to, to go and have a game of football. Um, but yeah, I played probably Saturday and Sunday, both, you know, both both days of the weekend, if you will, for about 10 years. Um, and then <laughs> I got a bit old, I think, to, to do two <laughs> uh, So I just went to Sundays. But no, I, I absolutely love it. And, and for probably about seven or eight years of that, I was literally coming off a pitch and either going straight to work on a Saturday or on a Sunday, I was going straight to run a junior football team. Um, and even on a Saturday before my game for a couple of seasons, I was running a junior football team. So it was it was a love for the game, a real a real passion. And and yeah, I, I, it's always been there. And you alluded to it at, at, at the top, David, but when did you first meet Barry Bernal? Yeah, um, my story is not necessarily completely different to sort of many of the other lads, but because there are some boys that, that did meet him at, at Butlin's holiday camp. Um, 
but obviously a, a majority of the the lads that that suffered abuse at his hands um were lads that lived in the local area to where he was from sort of derbyshire um macclesfield sort of area um and i met him at a Bullings holiday camp it was may 1979 and you know what i say to people about that sort of time is unless you're you know you're in your late 40s 50s you won't really appreciate and Butlins is fairly big now to be fair um but it was massive in those days you know not many people went abroad um when I was sort of 11 12 years old you know very few people were going abroad in the, the late 70s and stuff unless you had plenty of money um and I've got three brothers uh, it was a big family um but Butlins we went every year um we always went for one week and we got there and, and this particular time, um, there's, you know, there's an opportunity to, to play football all week and to have sessions with this coach, um, the resident football coach there, um, who happened to be a, a bloke called Barry Bennell. Obviously, it meant nothing to me. But when I got there, in, in the days around my, around my neck of the woods anyway, a lot of the, the blokes running junior football teams were, um, were like somebody's dad. You know, they were in their 30s, 40s, probably carrying a few stone in weight, fag hanging out of the mouth. You know, it was it was that type of sort of environment, really. Um, and I got there and there was this young bloke, skin sort of tight shorts on like they had in the sort of Gary Lineker 82, I think it was, World Cup. And it was like, you know, it was, it, it was just suntanned, big shaggy sort of permed air, looked a bit like Kevin Keegan, you know, and... Um, and he just had these incredible skills. And before the older session, I say the older session, it was like 10 to 14-year-olds, and, and I was 11. Um, he was running this kid's session, you know, like sort of five to nine-year-olds type session. And he's just dribbling in out of all these kids, and these kids are bouncing around. They absolutely love him. He's buzzing with enthusiasm. He's, you know, he's so, he was so... Um, he was doing like the RD, let's flick over the top of kids' heads. And it, it was just incredible what he could do with the football. And I know it's commonplace now. You know, there's a lot of people who can do fantastic skills with a football. Um, but in those days, it wasn't really as commonplace. It was like he was Brazilian or something. It was, it was incredible. And he just, you just couldn't, you were mesmerised by him. Um, and like I say, you know, I'm a young kid. And people talk about in, in abuse and sexual abuse in particular, et cetera, there's a period of grooming. And I think, you know, that's without a shadow of a doubt is right. Um, but I was groomed by football. Football was, was, it was everything, completely and absolutely everything to me. So when, when you've got someone who's, who's, can do something with a ball that you've never seen and somebody who's got these incredible personality, this buzzing enthusiasm and passion, this winning sort of smile. He's got all the trendy sort of brand new football kits. And um, he just, he, it was just like an instant hero attraction. Um, so we, we went all week, I went through the sessions, etc. And like I said, I was only 11. Um, some of the boys were 13, 14, and, and I'm not saying they were technically better than me, but they were they were probably better players. They were bigger than me, um, stronger than me. But I think he saw something in me, um, took a shine to me. 
my dad was a very, he wasn't a pushy dad at all. My dad was a rugby guy, um, but he was very sporty, very quick, my dad. Um, and he actually played rugby for Fylde at the time. He was the youngest person ever to play on the wing for Fylde. So he, he was he was good and he was, he was quick. And I think obviously he got some of the genes from him, but it was always about football for the boys, you know, for, for us a lot. None of us were interested in rugby at all. Um, and yeah, I just... He just went over talking to my dad and was telling him that I was a little star in the making and, and uh, you know, that he wanted to keep in touch with me and that he was a, a scout for Manchester City. Um, yeah, and he, he was really interesting. The end of the week came and I didn't win the boy of the week. And I was, I, I can't even tell you, I was destroyed. I was like 11 years old and my world has ended. It's crashed. And and I, somehow, I don't even know how I did it, Um and, and this is where I talk about the grooming process of my dad, really, because my dad was that enthralled by him as well. And, and what have you, that he really wanted to, to give me another opportunity to win the boy of the week. And, and, and in the end, we went back to Butlins for the second time. Um, we'd never done that before and we probably couldn't afford it. And my dad just was, uh, so I was writing to, to, to Barry Bernal at Butlins all the way through the summer. He kept asking how I was doing, what I was up to. And, and it's quite weird now talking to, to people younger than me and you sort of say you were writing handwrite, handwritten letters. Yeah. There, was no, there was no obviously texts and no emails. <laughs> um, so we were exchanging and, and that went on through the, the period. And then in the, I think it was the first week in September because the seasons were, it was seasonal then at Butlins very much. Um, and this was the second to last week of the actual uh, the Butlin season, and and then it shut down um, for, the, for the winter period. And I went back, and he was much more, and I mean, much more um, lavish with his praise. He was all over me, really, in, in relation to you know being um, complimentary. Used me for all the demonstrations and, and and everything else, and talking to me dad again and. And uh, telling me how much I'd improved. And so that was where I met him. That's where the, the, the bond was built. The grooming took place. The, the sort of, you know, by this resident football coach at Butlins, at Butlins Holiday Camp. Um, and then it, he was trying to get me to go and play for his team. Um, and the, the difficulty with that for me was obviously it was quite a distance. And in those days, it's not really a distance now in football. Even academy lads are, I think, allowed to travel up to an hour and even 90 minutes when they get a bit older, I think. But um, in those days, you know, I didn't travel more than about 15 miles to play football. And that was sort of Blackpool or St. Anne's to Fleetwood or something. It was, it was about as far as you went, the local league. Um, but to, to, to travel 45, 50 miles over to, to his neck of the woods to a game of football was unknown. And... Uh, yeah, it never really happened. Um, I was playing Saturday football. There was a lot of school football in those days. I was playing every Saturday from school, every Sunday for me, for my junior team, which my dad was chairman of. And then the situation, April 1980, a few weeks before, maybe a couple of months before, um, there was this soccer school taking place in Macclesfield. It was during the Easter school holidays. It was on a Friday. No reason not to go. And why would I not want to go? Um, you know, this is, this is my hero. This is a, an opportunity to attend a, a Silver Skills Soccer Award, um, sort of registered by the FA, uh, 
you know, sponsored by Coca-Cola. I get this sort of certificate, these badges, and it was about skill work and ball work, and which is what I felt I was good at. And, and uh, yeah, why would I not want to go? And uh, it was sort of discussed between him and me and my dad that it was early on a Friday morning start, so best to go down on the Thursday um, to kip over Thursday night uh, so I could make an early start on the Friday. And then because my dad had rushed up on the Thursday night, don't worry about rushing up on the Friday night to come and get me. Uh, come and get me on the Saturday morning, uh, just in your own leisurely time, so that you didn't have to sort of rush after work for a second night. So in the end, it, it ended up being two nights. Um, sleeping over and, and uh, you know, I don't want to put anybody off this, this recording today, so won't go into detail today, but just to say that I was sexually abused for a prolonged period of time over both evenings. How did you, how did you feel in the, in the immediate aftermath of, you know, as a, as a, as a young lad and, you know, you've just kind of talked to us there, David, about how much football meant to you and, and how excited you were to, 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 to be there at that, that 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 event and and then for that to happen to you, how did you feel in, in you know as I say in the immediate aftermath? Yeah, it's difficult to sort of explain it. I, I didn't really understand. You know, I mean, uh, we've heard that before, and it's true. You know, people saying that they don't really understand what was going on. Um, I was completely and utterly sexually naive. I mean, there's absolutely, you know, let's make that absolutely clear. This is. 1980, um, I'm 12, and probably about, I would say, where maybe an eight-year-old is today, um, I would have thought, you know, uh, you know, with the TV programmes and things that are on the telly and uh, and things that, you know, I, I think I, I played Kiss Cat, I think, at that stage or something like that. I, I don't think I'd sort of, you know, progressed any further than that at all. Um, and... I'd certainly, you know, things like masturbation and stuff like that, not a million miles away, from, never even crossed my mind, you know. So um, from my side of things, a bit lost, confused. Um, I remember, you know, my heart, you know, I, I, it cries out really for people who, who go through prolonged periods of abuse because the second night for me was was sort of far worse psychologically, Um because I sort of, once the door shut, I started basically to, 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 to get worried and and uh, and think about, you know, was this going to happen again? And so, you know, anybody who goes through a prolonged period of knowing it's coming, um, God bless them, because I, I just, you know, I God only knows how they cope with that week in, week out for years, um, in which, which some people do, obviously. Um, so, yeah, just confused. I didn't understand it. But, you know, I've said this before and I think it's important and that's why I like to speak out now is because it is confusing because, you know, I, with, again, not trying to be doing to graphic detail and put anybody off the viewing, but I became erect and and it was pleasurable in, 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 in some respect. Um, and that's confusing. Um, and I went home afterwards and it started me off on a period of, of, of shall we say pleasuring myself um so I'd never done that before I even went there um so it, it's difficult I was I, I, I didn't 
I didn't want to be around a guy on his own anymore. Um, I didn't want to be in a room one-to-one -one with, with a bloke. I was confused about my own sexuality. Um, I didn't understand what had happened, but I knew I, knew I never wanted to, to go back. Um, I knew I never wanted to be involved with that again and around that again, even though it had sort of aroused me, if you will. Um, so there was an awful lot of mixed feelings, um, confusion and and uh, and loss, really. I didn't really understand what, what I was going on. And I had an elder brother um, who'd sort of, you know, I suppose in those days, really, a, a gay person was just, you know, he just saw it as two guys that would kiss each other. And that was sort of as, about as much as I, I knew. And, um, you know, you, you're thinking, am I sort of gay? Um, so, you know, it's, it was a difficult, um, it's a difficult few years, if I'm honest. It's not, it's not something that we're not talking about a difficult few weeks here. It went on for a good few years. Did you, did you, confide in anybody about what happened did you tell anybody no not at all um i i was embarrassed once i sort of started to get my head around it a little bit um i didn't want to tell my brothers i knew there's i knew there was no way people would you know keep keep it quiet like my brothers would tell some you know and and i didn't understand it and i, and I didn't really know what was going on and but i, I have to say that I was, I was always thinking about telling somebody um, until uh, basically um, he came to my house. Uh, that's the other, obviously, you know, part of the story. And and I, and, I, and I genuinely believe that he came to with a purpose of trying to silence me that day. Um, and it worked. He, he came to my house maybe four weeks later. He'd never been to my house no reason to come to my house. Um, he'd written a letter, which I hadn't responded to. Um, and I came home from school one day and he sat in my front room drinking tea with my mum in the best room of the house, as we called it, the room that nobody ever went in unless it was a guest. Um, and he was sat there with a, with a lady, similar age, which was obviously his girlfriend. That confused me. Um, and we went upstairs, you know, cut a very long story short, but my mum told me to take him up and show him my trophies. I went up to show him my trophies and I was terrified. Um, I wanted to get back out as fast as I could. And he stood in the doorway and sort of, you know, just said, um, don't worry, I won't tell your mum what you did to me. Um, and at that age, I just, I, I don't know, I just, I thought, well, he's, he's, it was my fault. Um, I'm going to get in trouble here or I'm going to... And I just didn't have the words to... Um, and that silenced me then um, for, for many years, really. Um, that was the, the thing that I just, you know... But I'd, I still had this... I wanted to... I knew what he'd done was wrong. And as I got older and understood it, I was getting to a stage where I was, you know, not happy with, I couldn't, I just couldn't let it go. Um, 
I think that's always been, maybe that's a trait of the football or something. I'm very determined and I just couldn't let it go. And, and then there was this documentary in, in 1997 about him um, on the telly. And the following day, I went to pick my young son up from, um, he'd been at my mum's and my mum confronted me. Um, and she said to me, you know, did anything happen to you? And I just said, no, uh, no, mum, it didn't. Um, and I was trying to get out of the house as quick as I could, really. I was trying to avoid the subject. And she said, thank God, uh, you know, because I'm not really sure if I could have, how I would have coped if it had. Um, and I'd been sort of, you know, I, I saw the programme and, and I thought to myself, you know, he's been convicted of this before. That was the first time in 1997, you know, 17 years after the abuse took place that I was aware that there was others um, because I'm not in that, you know, I'm not, I wasn't in that local football environment. I wasn't playing for his team. Um, I didn't, you know, lots of the other boys have said that they were there in, in multiple numbers, you know, threes and fours. And, and uh, I wasn't, I was there for the two nights on my own. And um, yeah, it was, it was, real uh, so I I was thinking I need to tell somebody this I need to tell you know I need to go to police or something and then, then my mum just quashed that in one sentence and I and I made a secret promise I went out to my car and I'll never forget that day um went out to my car and I just said to myself I'll never disclose why my mum my mum is alive it I can't do it to her um and then jump forward to 2012 2012 my mum was diagnosed with terminal cancer and the last four or five months of her life I spent basically preparing to go to police um I decided decided that's it I've had enough of this I need to off I need to off this I need to get rid of it I need to disclose I need to get uh, him in prison if possible I need to get justice I need to bring others forward there's going to be many more um and my mum passed away 20th of January, um, 2013. The funeral was sometime later and I walked in Macclesfield Police Station on the 4th of February, 2013, five days after my mum's funeral. Um, and the first person I ever told was two female, well, it was a guy on the desk, first of all, an elderly guy just on the desk and obviously no detail. I just said to him, I'd like to report and non-recent sexual abuse as a, you know, as a child. Um, and then I disclosed to two female police officers about half an hour later. And you, you've, you've been very vocal about what happened in, in 2013 with the, with the justice system and the prosecution for, for Benell. And, and I believe at the time that you were originally told that pursuing a conviction wouldn't be in, in the public interest. How did that whole sort of experience affect you, you know, after carrying that for so long and then, you know, finally telling somebody and then being told that it wouldn't be in the public interest? How, how did that affect you? I'm, I'm not going to lie to you, Dan. To, to me, it's, it's been a horrendous experience and, and one that I'm really grateful. When, when you asked me to, to, to speak today, you know, I'm grateful to people like yourself because it was a long fight for me and it was a really difficult fight and it was very 
difficult on my mental health. Um, you know, lots of the things that have happened in my life have happened in the last 13 years. I've gone through a, t- a terrible divorce period before I disclosed that, you know, I've had lots of issues in, with my, my own children. I've lost my mum, my dad, my stepdad all in the last 13 years. I've been made redundant after 35 years of working somewhere. Um, I was really badly sort of bullied, if you will, emotionally bullied in the workplace. I, I've gone through a, a real crap period of, of sort of 13 years. And all while all that was going on, um, I had this other issue that at the time nobody was aware of. Um, I walked in that police station. Nobody in the world knew who knew me. The only thing I'd said to uh, was my um, fiance at the time. And I said to Teresa, I need to go and do something today. I can't tell you what it is, but when I come back from doing what it is, I'll tell you. Um, and I went off. She had no idea where I'd gone. She, she actually thought that I'd gone to visit for some reason um, family graves and stuff because I was struggling a bit with the loss of my mum. And I think she thought that I'd gone off to see my grandma and granddad's graves and stuff and just have a day to reflect and and. and and that was nowhere near the uh, nowhere near the truth. Um, so, yeah, I, it was terrible. I mean, I, I actually felt believed that day by police. I, there's no doubt about that. The two police officers at the time were very um, empathic. You know, they showed a lot of empathy towards me. They, they were very. Um, uh, I felt I felt that the, the interview that I gave on that day had you know, was, was taken seriously. Um, it wasn't till afterwards um, my issues with the police began, but um, I'll come to that in a, in a little while. But but yeah, the, so the investigation went through till sort of May time. Um, and it was only then when it went to the CPS towards the end of May um, that I you know, got a letter back in very early June saying that uh, they decided that it wasn't in the public interest to prosecute Barry Bernal because he'd already been served, he'd already served time in this country for offences towards children. Um, and they didn't think that if I had to come forward at the same time as the others, it would have added any weight to that sentence. Now, if you can make head and tail of that, then good luck with it. But to me, I just didn't understand it. I just, what, what do you mean if I had to come forward at the same time and it wouldn't have added any weight? None of this makes any sense to me. I've never been near a police station in my life. To me, I don't, you can't, you can't order, you can't sort of do it to order coming forward to disclose sexual abuse of a, you know, as a child. It, it, it's not something that just happens because somebody says, well, you need to come forward today. Um, you're going to come forward when you're in that right position in your life, when maybe your mum and dad aren't around anymore, maybe when you've got strength, maybe when your kids have grown up. There's lots of different reasons why people are not in a position or, or don't feel in the right place. Maybe their own mental health is not in the right place to disclose. Um, so to, to say, well, if you'd have come forward in 19... Nobody asked me to come forward. The police investigation never, never found me. I wasn't aware of of this investigation taking place till, you know, till after it happened. Um, so I felt really, you know, they said he'd been, he would be looked at by the courts as being re- rehabilitated. They said, you know, that 
at the end of the day, they didn't think it would it would serve any purpose putting him back in prison. Now, and I, let's make no bones about this, Dan. I told them that anybody who slept at his house will have been sexually abused. This guy was infatuated by children, and there was nothing special about me. I was just a normal lad who loved football, and you know he he couldn't keep his hands off me um, when we were alone, and I told him. You know, they need to open an investigation. Uh, I told them, I've got notes from CPS meetings that, you know, I told them that that when they did a full investigation into Jimmy Savile, they found 570-odd people. So, you know, they need to open an investigation. They didn't want to, they weren't interested, um, and they dropped my case. And I, I just refused to allow that to happen. I demanded a meeting with the CPS. Um, I went to the meeting with the CPS. I was told I would speak to the lawyer who dealt with my case, in the end, they decided not to let her in the room. Um, surprise, surprise. And I was given her line manager who couldn't look at me. Um, on their own website at the time, it said, it will be seen as in the public interest to prosecute um, offenders if, if they've had previous similar offences. Well, this guy had previous similar offences. So one minute they're saying it's not in the public interest because of that. And on their own website at the time, it was saying it is in the public interest if he's got similar offences. Also, if the victim is 12 years or under, I was 12. Um, if there's a period of grooming, there was. If he's sole culpable, he was. If it's serious offences, it was. So every single box on their own uh, website at the time, um, this case ticked, and yet they still didn't want to convict him. So I went through a period then of, of going to this brand new panel, the National Childhood Sexual Review Panel, which was brand new. It literally was, man was like the test case that went to it. Um, and I, I spent ages putting a letter together with all, quoting all different legislations and reasons why, and it, it was in the public interest because I knew if I just sort of had a little moan, nobody would, nobody would listen to it. Um, and I found out a bit later, you know, and I, I I try to tell people about the way that you're suffering at this stage. I'm trying to work during this period. I'm trying to be normal in front of family, of which at this stage, at that stage, June, July, 2013, only my three brothers were aware, um, my dad, my stepdad, <coughs> uh, pretty much, and Teresa, obviously, were aware that, that this was going on. Um, and nobody at work or anything like that was aware. It was it was driving me insane. I was obsessed. I couldn't sleep. Um, so yeah, it was a really difficult period. Um, eventually, the second time round, I was informed that my case had, had changed the prosecution guidance in England to uh, allow him to be charged, and for cases such as this where an offender is being sort of retried for offences, um, not retried, sorry, for, for being tried for new offences, but um, after he's already served a sort of conviction that <clears throat> um, may only get a minimal sentence, that it would be seen as in the public interest. So hopefully it would, would change things for other people, not just myself. Um, and I was informed of that. I think it was the... March when I eventually got the letter from the CPS of 2014. So we're now one 13 months in. Um, 
that he was going to be charged and he was eventually charged in, uh, yeah, towards the end of, in the March, early April, I think, of, of 14. Um, and then I had to wait until April 15 for my day in Crown Court. Um, so, you know, in the end, it was a, by the time he was sentenced, it was two and a quarter years of which during that entire period, um, I was anonymous. Nobody was aware except for a few very close family members. Um, so it was it was horrendous. It was such a difficult period. Um, but I got there in the end and, and uh, he was finally sentenced to two years of which he would serve one in prison. Um, and as much as that was devastating, really, the fact he would only serve one year in prison, um, coming out of court, the only thing I could say to the police officer who, who, who ran the case from, from my side since that first interview um, was, was the tell, please tell me there was some press in that box. Please tell me that there was some attention, you know, somebody was going to write about this. Um, and she said, yeah, there was a, an individual from the media and there was one person from the Macclesfield Express um, in that courtroom that day, one person. And they wrote about it and it went through and, and then people started picking up on it online. So it was, it was on a crew Chronicle or something. It was Macclesfield. It was, uh, it was in the Chester Chronicle because obviously it was in Chester. It was in the, he was living in Milton Keynes at the time. So Milton Keynes put it out there. Um, and there was one or two other Manchester papers did it and um, Stoke Centile did it. Uh, and, and I kept seeing these things come up online. And obviously my name wasn't mentioned and I was anonymous, but he was, um, yeah, I knew, I knew at that stage that somebody else would be seeing this. Um, and yeah, they were all local. They weren't national papers, but there was some, you know, relatively big ones in there. And I just, I just hoped. And what happened was, um, that was obviously um, May of 2015 we're in now. And I had to just wait and wait and wait. And it got to April of 16. So this is the year the scandal broke in the November. Um, but it was April 2016. And I contacted the police and said, you know, has nobody else come forward? Um, and I was really cheesed off. I mean, I know I've no right to know. But I was informed by the police officer, yep, two more people had come forward. Um, and if he was released in the May for his offences to me. Um, he would be on parole for a year, he'd be on licence for a year anyway. Um, but if he was released, it wouldn't be for long because um, these cases had progressed and were progressing. And now know that uh, the main, I suppose the, the first person who went forward and the main survivor in the, the big case that got 31 years, so sentenced to 31 years in, in February of um, 2018, the, the first person from that had gone forward on the back of, on the back of seeing my um, conviction for him. Um, and he'd gone through to police and disclosed and some very serious charges. Um, and that was already sat with the CPS um, from the September of 2016. That case was sat on their desk. So when, when if you will, the ex-footballer uh, uh, went to see Daniel Taylor um, at the Guardian with his horrendous, horrendous truth. Um, 
and it is a horrendous story, his story. Uh, but when he went there, it wasn't just a, if you will, like a 19-year-old a story at that stage, because that's sort of what it was. It was like a, it was like 19 years ago when, when he was one of the people that Benno was convicted for. Um, it was very current. It wasn't a 19-year-old story anymore. It was a current story because this guy was literally on, he just served 12 months. He was on license for me. And there was a case sat with the CPS. Um, he was about to be charged. Uh, and we're talking about Manchester City, which obviously at that stage were, were um, a top Premier League side. So all of a sudden, this story is very, it's very real. It's very new. It's about to happen. It's about to explode. Another charge. And Daniel Taylor wrote the story. Um, and shortly afterwards, um, the world went mad. Uh, boy after boy after boy came forward. And, and obviously the sort of rest is, is out there. Um, yeah. And obviously all of that kind of, um, as you say, uh, Andy Woodward spoke on um, the Victoria Derbyshire show, didn't he, with um, Steve Walters and some of the other guys as well. And yeah. that led to the documentary that came out recently, Football's Darkest Secrets, um, which is a three-parter on the, on, on the BBC. Given given everything that you've gone through, how did you feel watching that programme? I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, let's, let's be perfectly honest about it. The programme was really well done. Um I thought it was very, uh, it told a lot of stories out there. Um, and I think it was, you know, incredibly important that the documentary was done. Um, I felt it, you know, it, it, it pretty much covered everything except me. And I think it's very easy to, uh, to put media attention around something when you've got professional footballers, um, you know, at the forefront of this. Um, and that story about Andy Woodward breaking, breaking the story in 2016 um, is, is true in the fact that it was his story that was highlighted. Um, all I would say to it is Barry Bennell was not seen as in the public interest to prosecute. Um, I had to fight like crazy and fight like hell to get that guy convicted. Um, I'm now aware that in 2018, I actually stood outside court on the day of sentencing. That's, you know, where, where my head's at. I wouldn't go into the courtroom. I never wanted to see him again. They threw me with him and I had to sit alongside him almost outside court on my own case, which, you know, I'm not discussed today, but I had to have, um, I had to have a period of counselling for that. Um, it was the one thing I never wanted to do was to see him. Never wanted to see him. I wanted to go into court behind screens. They even forgot to put the screens up initially. But then, the, yeah, under special measures, I attended court and they, they made me sit outside court with him um, on the day of sentencing. So I, the police justice system, parole, was supposed to inform me he was being released from prison. They didn't inform me. CPS let me down. I, I went through, I'm still going through it. Um, I'm still fighting Cheshire Police now for a full apology. Um, which I'm, I'm hopeful is, is coming very soon. Um, so for, for my story not to be covered, um, I sound like some deranged lunatic. I ain't a deranged lunatic. I'm a really professional guy. Um, I just 
I just feel that it's it's not the truth. The whole truth was not told. An important part of this fight was not told. Why they don't want to uh, highlight that police in this country um, hid the fact that there was a list of nine boys' names on that Barry Burnell himself admitted sexually abusing from a prison cell in 1998 after his conviction involving new boys that were not part of that case. The police gave him assurances that if he named boys, other boys, they would not prosecute him. And he named nine other boys that he admitted sexually abusing from a prison cell. Uh, and he did not face prosecution. I'm aware of that. I've raised that and highlighted it in the media. And the police officer who led my case in 2013 went through the cold stores, if you will, the old stores to look for information to see whether my name had ever been brought up in, the, in that first investigation. It hadn't, but she found that list. Um, she was aware of that list and did nothing with it. Um, so, you know, if those boys had been contacted like they were eventually contacted um, for, the, for the later trial, for the big trial, for the big case, those boys were contacted and, and told that they were, you know, if you were on a list, that he'd named them. And did they want to disclose? Did they want to come forward? And some of them did. If that had happened with me, it would have happened sooner. So police basically hit a list as far as I'm concerned. Um, I'm very bitter about that. And, and maybe that doesn't put our wonderful justice system in, in, um, in, in a, a really nice picture for a, a, a documentary program. Um, and I feel it's wrong. I don't feel the whole story was out there. And that's why I'm honest, Dan, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful for people like you giving me the platform to, to tell people the truth. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, obviously doing some research for, for, for this interview with you, David, and, and you know, we've followed you on um, on Twitter for a while as well, and, and, and you're very vocal about all that stuff that you'd been through. I suppose for you, you you must have just felt kind of, you know, with with all of the, the, the sort of national media attention that the story garnered eventually, you must have just felt kind of let down, I suppose, by... By everybody involved, and 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 you know, it, it it's it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think, as you as you mentioned, the, the the documentary was very well done, and it's raised the issue to a national attention. But as you say, with the caveat of it, it's not everything that happened. It, it's it's far from it, though. It's it really is far from it. It's like you know, it's missing a massive, massive part of this. Because, you know, make no bones about it, when Andy Woodward did his, did his bit on the telly um, and, and The Guardian, you know, that, that highlighted abuse that's, that's, you know, I was contacted by NAPAC, uh, Manchester Survivors have, have, have put these figures out as well. And I think just in general across the country, this wasn't just about football anymore. This was about men coming forward in all walks of life that have been sexually abused. Um, you know, do you... you the numbers in football are horrendous, but but you look outside of that, and and everybody kept reporting that there's just you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men who've been sexually abused all of a sudden found the, the courage to come forward. Um, so ultimately, you know, I believe that that my case is an integral part of that, um, and changing the guidance to allow him to be prosecuted. Um, and yeah, it's just I, I sort of you know. I've campaigned about it because 
there were so many things that were wrong with the justice system. So many things needed changing. Chester Crown Court have now told me that since what happened to me, it's never happened since. They put procedures in place to stop uh, people who were under, attending court under special measures being able to be, you know, that possibility of, of being put with their, um, their offenders again outside court. And, you know, it's about change. Let's be honest, we can't change the past, but we can change the future. And it's about highlighting it. And when you've got Manchester City's safeguarding head officer, who, who told me in I think it was late 2018, that, that after all this happened, um, he had one person, I think he said, came one parent who was concerned, who came to see him. Um, people won't, won't talk about this issue. You know, this issue's not gone away. Um, this issue's never going to change in, in relation to, will it, do I think it'll change in the professional game? Yeah, I do. But do I think it'll change at grassroots? Absolutely not. Um, and that's why it needs to be kept out there. And that's why I've continued to do what I've done for numerous years to, to, to keep highlighting. Yeah, how can I put it? You need a subject area to bring the topic into the arena. Yeah. So you can't just keep putting just some random tweet. You've got you've got to have something constructive within it, like whether it's your story or whether it's a blog or you know, whether it's a, a podcast. There's got to be something for, for someone to sort of listen to and, and, and think about retweeting it, and especially this subject area, because most people won't retweet it anyway. Um, it, it's about keeping it at the forefront of people's minds um, because it's, it, it's not going to stop. It's growing. The, the area of, of online abuse and, and stuff like this, it's, it's a growing area. It's not, getting, it's not going away. So people just need to, every time I see, you know, there was an offender found guilty around my neck of the woods not so long ago. And people that a lot of my friends on Facebook, and, you know, are aware of this person. And the first thing I'm getting is private messages saying, oh, I would have never expected him. Or I'd never expect, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sick of, of telling people. It's the people that you don't expect in, in many cases that are the, you know, the people that can get close to children, the people are in positions of responsibility, that are in positions of community, that, that deal with the children, that, that can build those links, that can groom those people. So they are obviously the least expected people. But these are the people that, that, there are, that are often sexually abusing the children. Um, and, that, you know, it's time people woke up to that. It's interesting really you should mention grassroots football I suppose in that day because I, I mean so but um, my friend and I used to um, coach uh, a kids football team a while ago about four or five years ago um, when we were in our we were in our early 20s and I think it was an under 15s and then under 16s team and we did two years with them and I wrote, I wrote an article recently about the fact that we did that two years there and nobody ever did a a DBS check on us. Nobody ever vetted us. Nobody ever came to check what we were doing. It was, it, it, it was all very kind of, you know, here's the the balls and the cones, and you know, see you later kind of thing. And because obviously a lot of that of grassroots football is run by volunteers and yeah. and that type of thing. It, it's it's always the way. But I suppose, you know, the the I read an interview that you did, David, where you were talking about the Sheldon report, and you were hoping that it would encourage sports and, and football to, to learn from the mistakes that have been made in terms of football as an industry and not just the professional game as you say but football as, as a whole do you think that 
it's learned the right lessons about safeguards and about well-being support for players, or is it is it still almost in 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 a bit of a state of denial in some cases? No, I don't. I don't think it's in a, a state of denial. I think it's such a massive area, and obviously you've you've just mentioned there that you've you've been involved in junior sports. So, you know, things are improving. Obviously, nowadays junior managers and um, with clubs that are affiliated to the FA, etc., in, in in proper leagues, structured leagues, they do have the DBS checks. They do, um, but a DBS check doesn't mean anything. All it means is that on the day that that DBS check was done, that you haven't got any previous convictions, which is a, it's a start, but a lot of these people, they're they're innocent until they're found guilty in court. So ultimately, um, all it does is show any previous offences. In relation to most junior clubs will will do maybe a little basic interview with somebody. Um, It's somebody's dad. Quite often, uh, people don't expect somebody's dad to be, you know, Barry Benell has got two children. He was married. Um, that's not, this is not about weird, sort of strange blokes anymore. This is about professional heterosexual men and women um, of any age. You know, Barry Benell was 24, 25 when he sexually abused me. Um, there are boys in, in their late teens who are sexually abusing siblings and, and, and other children. You know, this is... So, so, you know, it's, it's proven now that this is going on right through teenage years, right through to obviously older people as well, um, of both sexes. It's it, it's it's out there. Um, are the checks being done enough? Apparently now, things like the LFA, which is the area I'm in, Lancashire, they do random spot checks and check that the coach is there or the coach is on the approved list. Um, but it's a massive field. It's very, very difficult to to put all the rules in, in place. You know, I'm, I'm aware of junior managers that will still give lifts to children. Um, and obviously we've seen in, in some of the stories that have come out during this, that the boys were abused in cars um, by some of the, the coaches that, you know, the high profile coaches that have had cases. But I'm aware of junior managers that still give lifts to children um, because otherwise the children can't get there. You know, single parent families or, uh, and, and they've got three or four other siblings and the mum can't get them there or whatever. And, and your know, manager offers to pick them up. It's, it, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen again. And, uh, and my, my concern is that, you know, we've had all this highlighted in, in football, but under the radar, you hear that the odd one from canoeing or you hear the odd one from, you know, athletics or the odd one from cricket. This is every sport. And these people get close to people. And sometimes they won't necessarily sexually abuse people for years. You know, they don't necessarily uh, do it to every child. Um, but it's, you know, let's not kid ourselves about the fact that this is going away or this is hidden. Um, people will ultimately try to get close to children any way physically possible. And what better way is there um, than by doing something that they're already completely passionate about and they love and you have maybe the keys to to progress their careers or something in that nature um so they will try and infiltrate any any sort of sport any um you know piano lesson it could be a music teacher it could be it could be anything that's going to progress a child and and hook that child and their parents um, so no, I, I am massively concerned because I don't believe it's going away, uh, and I believe it needs to be at the forefront of everything that we do. 
it's um it, that, that my kind of um I, I kind of had the same thought process as you david and it, it can't it can't possibly just be a football problem it can't possibly just be consigned to one industry because it wouldn't make any sense with it for that to be the case it's 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 difficult isn't it because it's so as you say so wide range and anyone in a position of sort of authority and responsibility with with children could be in in, in that same position it wouldn't just be a football coach in in terms of how you're when you know when you sort of look back on 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 everything right from when you were very very young all the way up to to today do you kind of do, do, do you look back with with any regret about not talking sooner or is it are you kind of everything happened as it happened almost if you see what I mean yeah I mean just in relation to my mum um no I'm, I, there's part of me I mean I'd be lying if I said there's part of me they didn't want to um disclose a lot earlier um but after the words my mum said in, in, in 1997, then, then obviously I was never going to say anything. Um, I read a sort of poem out, that, uh, sort of a poem, I say sort of, but I'd written it, so it probably wasn't a very good poem, but <laughs> um, I wrote it, I read it out at her, her um, service, if you will, her, her funeral service, and I alluded to the fact that I was going to police. I didn't say those words. I just said, I promised I'd keep it secret, but it's almost my time. Um and I got questioned afterwards at the wake, you know, what, what do you mean? I, I heard you say a sentence about it. I promised to keep it secret, but it's almost my time. And I just said, I can't tell you. I said, I've got a secret with my mum and uh, one day I'll tell you. Um, I was always going always gonna to do it. And um, I was let down, you know, and I, and I refused to, to back down to stuff that's, that's wrong. You know, there's no justification for what happened that day. Um, from my case being dropped, there is no justification whatsoever. There's no justification for police not following up on a list that's in their possession. Um, and they just didn't do it. And, and yeah, I, you know, I, I believe it or not, I mean, it's hard to believe after the way I've spoke today, but I'm a big believer in the, the justice system in this country and the police and, and uh, you know, never been in trouble in my life and my mum you know would always teach me as a kid you know if a policeman asked me to jump it would be how high you know it was it was that's the way I was raised and um I, I just the one time I needed the justice system to look after me you know I'm, I'm 54 coming up and I've only ever needed it once and it let me down um that probably um the fact that you had respect and admiration for the justice system that probably made that disappointment worse I would imagine as well massively yeah massively and and you know only only sort of this week we're recording at the end of April and 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 there was a quite an extraordinary story that that was emerged about um, a, a civil case with some of the the victims that had been uh, abused whilst at Manchester City and the club uh, have have said that they are considering or you know it's been it's 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 come to light that the club are considering using Benel as a witness in in those cases. What was your reaction when reading that story? unbelievable. I mean, as if it's not bad enough, the possibility of this guy going into a courtroom where, you know, there could be the lads there and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure some of them aren't bothered about seeing him, but, you know, I, I didn't want a current, a current 
sort of the appearance of him. I didn't want to see what they look like now, and now I do. Um, so uh, it's, it's horrendous, the fact that they're using him. But more importantly to me, it's like he's a liar. He's, he's a born liar. He, he completely denied um, knowing who I was. Um, he admitted it was him in these pictures, but denied that he, he you know, he'd certainly ever sexually abused me. Um, he pled not guilty uh, all the way through the, you know, to the 2018 case. Um, and he pled not guilty in the 1997 until the day of the sort of trial. And this is a guy that um, admitted to police in, like I said, uh, in a prison interview in 1998 that he'd nine other boys. Um, when on tape, if you listen to the, the tape that was played um, from David James Smith, that was part of the uh, documentary, The Wall of Silence, um, done by Al Jazeera, if you listen to that tape, um, he admits there that he's only ever abused six boys. Um, and that was, that was that recording was done, I think, 2012. He was recorded saying they've only ever abused six boys. Um, so... He's, he's saying that on tape when he abused six boys. Then he's given police a list of nine other names. Then there was 23 children went forward in that case. Then there's been another 80 and 90 afterwards. Um, so how you can use someone out as any credibility and also putting the, the, the guys through that is just horrendous. And it's, it's a shambles. And I don't care whether the club are saying that it's down to the solicitors or I'm not interested. At the end of the day, they're paying they are acting on behalf of Manchester City and, and it shouldn't be happening and I'm disgusted. Yeah, I, I completely agree, David. And you would, you know, it, even just from a, I mean, even just from a, as you say, from a, a credibility perspective, it, it, you know, how does his word mean anything in that setting? It is is quite extraordinary. It, it, in terms of, I, I wanted to conclude a little bit on, the, you know, sort of a, of a positive note. And, and I know that you've been, studying to become a counsellor and that was something that you mentioned to me when we first um started talking on 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 twitter first of all how, how's all that going it's going really well um I, as i mentioned before i'm not academic i went straight into a sport and leisure facility um and in those days in particular the first sort of 15 years i don't think there was even a computer in the building um it was about me teaching kids football sport badminton you know youth clubs discos all sorts of you know, you, it was like a really busy community centre. It was it was fantastic, and, and and I never needed any sort of computer skills or any additional, I suppose you could say, qualifications. And I went through my life like that. Um, I suppose you could say winging it. You know, it's and I I got to probably about about the time of disclosure, really, about two thousand and thirteen, and. I was looking at my life and thinking, you know, I really like to, to, to look at something else um, and went through a period of counselling myself. And there was some good, good sides to that and some maybe not so good sides to that. Um, and I think, I think I've always been raised well. I think I'm a fairly good listener. Just naturally, I, I genuinely believe that I'm a, I'm a sort of caring person. And, and I thought, I know there's a lot more to it than this, but I thought I've got some of the... Um, the attributes really to look at this and not necessarily just within an abuse setting um, and, and people that have been sexually abused but but it just in life in general and my job now that I currently do and um, I meet an awful lot of people um, 
who've got issues and problems in their life and and barriers and I try and help and support them not not as an actual counselor but but I, I sort of do that a lot of one-to-one work um so I thought you know this is something I need to look at and I need to work I need to financially uh, work for financial reasons um I've always done that I've worked for sort of 38 years now in in Fileborough for the, for, the, for the community of Fileborough if you will and um, not for the council but um and and I wanted to to sort of you know look at what I could do as I approached the latter stages of my life if you will and and I wanted you know I, I felt that that's something that I'd, I'd like to look at and there's a way of doing it where certainly for the first two years um, that you do night school, sort of one night a week, um, and then you get to level four, and that's one one full day a week for two years, plus you have to do placement hours and there's an awful lot of coursework and homework, etc. But I thought, yeah, really, I really want to have a go at this and a crack at it. And it's been really testing, it's really difficult um, for me. Um, some of the assignments and, and things that you have to do um, have been hard work for me um, but I'm getting there I'm coming towards the end of my first year of my diploma so hopefully by maybe June of next year um, I will be qualified I'm out on placement now doing it for real um, so yeah it's it, it, it's been hard work but it's it's something that I've got a real passion for um, and I really feel that I can I can sort of build a relationship with people, which I think is what counselling is a lot about. It's about building that therapeutic relationship for, to allow people to, to get close and to talk and, and to open up and to, to look at their issues in maybe a way that they've not looked at them before with somebody who's prepared to listen. Absolutely. And I, I, I you know, I, I find it really admirable that you've decided to do that as a, pursue that as a career, David and I, and, you know, from what you were saying at the, at the beginning of that answer, it, it sounds as though you have got the right, the, you know, the the sort of natural skills that you would need to apply to it to, to something like that. So, you know, I, I hope that goes, you know, I hope that continues to be, you know, something positive for you. And, and yeah, I can fully imagine that you're going to help a lot of people through doing that work. As, as my final question then, David, in terms of anybody listening who might be in a, a similar position to yourself where you found yourself a number of years ago, either as a youngster or then as, as an adult as well, what would your, you know, if you had one biggest piece of advice that you could give somebody, what would you, what would you say? I always say the same, you know, people have different opinions on this one. Um, it really is, you know, speak to people and it's, it's a wide topic area for survivors. There's only around 5% maybe get a conviction for non-recent um, cases it's a shocking statistic, but unfortunately there's no sort of forensic really evidence, et cetera. And lots of your memories maybe have, have faded away, especially if you're a young child. Obviously I was, I was 12, um, 12 and a half. It's, it's a, my memories have never gone. Um, but if you're maybe five or six years old, uh, it's very difficult to prove. But if you are going to disclose, what I would say to people is, Make sure you've got support um, because you're going to need it. If you're going to bring out that cork out of that bottle and open it up, um, you're going to need somebody on your side, somebody you can speak to. And I don't mean a counsellor maybe that will be provided to you through the justice system who you might speak to for an hour a week. Um, I'm talking about someone you might need to be able to speak to daily. Um, I would say that be prepared for 
not to get criminal justice because there's a very big possibility that you won't get criminal justice and you need to be aware of that. Um, I would say that uh, be prepared for a long fight because it can take non-recent cases a couple of years sometimes to get something you know, through investigations and police and courts because it's not top of the priority list for police at times. Um, they pick up non-recent cases in some cases when they've got a spare few minutes and stuff like that. Obviously, they've got current crime to deal with um, and they're snowed under. So it's a long, difficult process. However, would I say to anybody, disclose absolutely 100% yes, because I feel that it's good to unburden yourself with that, that issue. And I also feel that whether you get criminal um, justice through the criminal system or whether you don't, hopefully that person will be interviewed. Um, that individual will go through a period of, of, of realising that they are um, being investigated. And, and I think that's really important that, that these people are put under that type of scrutiny um, for the crime that they've committed. That's the very least they deserve. Um, but it's a difficult, difficult process. And uh, it's something that you can't put back. Once you start the process and you take that out and you start speaking to people and you offload that, it sort of floods back a little bit and it becomes, whereas it's sort of maybe stored somewhere in the back of your head, it becomes to the front of your head and you maybe go through a period of triggering and, and reliving it. Um, and yeah, it, it, but I, I would definitely say, in my opinion, whether that's to the criminal justice system or whether that's just to, to family, friends, somebody you trust, um, share it, offload it, talk to someone, um, uh, because I, in my opinion, it helps. Absolutely. Absolutely.